Turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 today. Working our way through this study in the midst of 1 Corinthians on spiritual gifts. Paul says, again, as a reminder while you're turning there, um, now concerning spiritual gifts in verse 1, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Um, as I'm studying and, and preparing for these messages, I think, um, not just in this area, but I think so often there are so many in the church that are okay with being uninformed uh, with biblical things. They've heard someone say something about it or whatever, but um, biblically uninformed uh, or misinformed. Some people in the body who are just okay with being misinformed. And so um, they were told something or this sounded right or whatever. And, and, and again, I want to encourage us as we come to this study, as we're seeking through not just this study, but any study that we would seek to be biblically informed. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible tell us about these things? And therefore, let's base our understanding off of what the scriptures say. And hopefully as we go through this, uh, we'll be doing that together. But let's read this morning's passage, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12. And if you wouldn't mind standing with me. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, grace that we see in this passage, grace that has made a way for us to be reconciled to you by your spirit, in your spirit. And so we praise you and we thank you. We want to worship you for these things. And Lord, we want you to help us. We want you to um, open our hearts and open our minds that we can understand and we can behold wonderful things from your law, Lord. We love you and we are grateful for your word. So help us through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, this morning we're going to spend a portion, a small portion of our time with verse 12, and then the majority of our time with verse 13. Verse 12 we'll pick up again next week as we look at this picture of the body that Paul's painting in chapter 12. We'll pick that up more uh, with that next week. But Paul says in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He's using this metaphor, this picture. If you remember, uh, he used the picture in chapter 9. Remember in chapter 9, and we're in the midst of this right now, but he's telling those who were familiar with the Olympics and, and in Corinth, the Isthmian Games, he said, I want you to think. I want you to observe and think about your surroundings. Think about the race that you see in the games and, and the winner of the race and how he runs or she runs and, and, and pay attention to that. Think about all that goes into that. Think about those things and apply it to how you walk. In the same way, he's causing us to think again. He's giving us this metaphor, this picture of our physical bodies and comparing that to the church. So he's saying, think about your body, how your body is made up of many different parts. We have fingers and toes and legs and arms and abdomen and all of these different parts that function together to make one body. And we might talk about different parts. We might say, this is my finger and my finger is sore or my finger is whatever. But ultimately, it's all a part of one body. What Paul's saying here, and, and as we get through verses 14 through 26, is that's the way the church is. He, he says at the end of verse, uh, or, or in uh, verse 11 that we looked at last week, all of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And now what he's saying is those individuals who have been gifted in different ways, those individuals make up one body in the same way that the individual parts of you make up one body. That's the church. That's what the church is like. 
The spirit apportions gifts to all these individuals, but it's one body and there's a point to it. There's a point to it that we'll see even more next week that it's to display this picture. The, the body is a picture of Christ. And when we function together by the spirit in unity, then we're displaying this body of Christ. What a joy and an opportunity we have there. Many members united in Christ display the body of Christ to each other and to the world. You notice that Paul says here, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say, so it is with the church. He says, so it is with Christ. We, the members of the body, are the body of Christ. We display Christ together. Try to take a a part of your body and separate it from the rest of your body, which I don't recommend. But if you take um, uh, your toe and for some reason today you decide to cut your toe off or something happens and you cut your toe off and you watch your toe. It's going to die unless it is very quickly reattached to your body. It can't live apart from your body. And and as we get into this, the beauty of this is that's kind of the picture that Paul is giving us. You're a part of a body and you can't just get this idea that I can just go off and be on my own. No, no, no. You were made and brought into this body and, and we need to be the body of Christ together. You remember when um, Paul or Saul is on the road to Damascus and and he encounters the Lord there on the road to Damascus. And Jesus speaking to him says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And we see there even in, in that this picture of. We, the Bible, because what was Paul doing? What was Saul doing? He was going from city to city, town to town. He was persecuting the members of the body, the parts of the body. And what Jesus says, you're persecuting me because this is my body. We're the body of Christ. Beautiful picture that we have there. We're going to look into that more deeply next week. But how do we become a part of that body? That's what Paul points to in in verse 13. How do these individuals become a part of this body to make it one body that is the body of Christ? He says in verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is how we become a part of the body of Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. I want to take just that last part that I read there, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free first, and then we'll look at the rest of the passage. What Paul's saying is there's no classes. You're the body of Christ. And there's no classes of Christians. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek or slave or free, you are one in Christ. No matter who you were, no matter what you were, you're one in Christ. In fact, he says in Galatians 4, verses 26 through 28, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's almost identical to what he says here in 1 Corinthians 12, right? You're one in Christ. No matter what you were or who you were, you're now one in Christ. You are sons and daughters of God. Beautiful. Now, what does he mean? How do we become a part of that? What does he mean here when he says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. What, what does he mean there by the baptism of the Spirit? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think this is important. This is why we're taking this one week on these two verses and really this one verse. What does it mean by being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is, is it what some people mean with baptism of the Holy Spirit where 
someone will come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And then at some point after that, they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. They'll, they'll get this power from the Holy Spirit. And then they'll have fullness in Christ. Is that what Paul's meaning here? Receive the gift of tongues. They'll receive this power. Is that Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12 when he refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. In fact, I know he's not referring to that here. He's talking about all of us, right? For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And what he's talking about is this this immersion into the spirit. If you think of baptism, when you see a baptismal service, um, you see someone come forward to profess Christ. And when they're baptized, they're they're dunked in this water, right? They're immersed. They're drenched. They, they look different when they come out, right? They're, they're dry when they go in, and they're wet when they come out, right? And, and in the same way, what he's referring to is that, that point when we're saved, when we are literally drenched, we're immersed into the Holy Spirit. And all of us, he says, all of us in Christ are a part of that. When we believe and when we come to know Christ, we are immersed into the spirit, which makes us a part of the body of Christ. Paul says when he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. If you're in Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Blessing in the heavenly places. That's amazing. He goes on in the same chapter in verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when you heard the gospel and you believed, you were sealed at that moment with the promised Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. You've been given the Spirit, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is, that happened the moment you were saved. You were immersed. You were baptized into one body. We all received the Spirit when we believed. We were baptized. We were immersed in the Spirit. Otherwise, Paul says we're not saved. In fact, in, in Romans 8 9, he's very clear on that. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I mentioned this is important. We seek to understand the gifts of the Spirit. This idea of, of, of baptism in the Spirit is, is often understood as a, a secondary or a, a second thing that happens after we're saved. But, but what we see in Ephesians and what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 is when we believe we're immersed, we're given the Spirit at that moment. Paul's using this picture here of all of us being immersed in the Spirit, really to address the problems that he's seeing in Corinth. The the Corinthians are are, are elevating certain gifts above others. And what Paul's saying here in chapter 12, verses, or verse 13, he's like, no, no, you're all one. There's no classes. You're one. You were all baptized in the Spirit. You were all immersed into the Spirit. So what do we do about passages and acts that are used to emphasize this second baptism or this baptism in the Spirit that comes after we believe the gospel, sometime after? What do we do with those? Let's look at those passages, okay? Let's look at this together, okay? I I mentioned at the beginning, and, and... Look at this stuff. 
write, we're going to look at a lot of verses today. Write it down and go and study it. Here's what I feel as, as we're going into this, and as I'm studying this, um, all of this 12 through 13 and spiritual gifts and, and, and all of this, I, you understand there are different categories, right? Like we have different uh, groups in the body of Christ. I belong to this group. There's a cessationist view, and then there's open but cautious and third wave. You don't have to know what all these are yet. We'll, we'll get there, okay? And then there's charismatic, and then there's Pentecostal. We all kind of have our camps, right? I'm in this camp, or I'm in this camp, or I'm in this camp. These are my camps. This is and what it seems like, okay? Not across the board is most people are in their camp because that's the camp they were brought up in. That's just the group that they've been a part of. And so they've they've been listening to people in that camp and been taught that camp's view. And most people have an understanding of spiritual gifts in the Holy Spirit that doesn't come from the Bible, that, that doesn't come from, let me rephrase that, okay? That doesn't come from their study of the Bible, but from everyone else in their group's study from the Bible. And so if you ask someone uh, what they believe about the Holy Spirit, they may tell you what their group believes, but then if you follow that up and say, well, why do you believe that? Can you show me why you believe that? They'll stumble around and say, well, pastor so-and-so or this preacher says this rather than saying, this is what the Lord says in his word. And so write this stuff down, okay? See if what I'm saying is what God is saying in his word. If it's not, then come to me and and let's, let's look at that together, okay? Because what we want to have is a biblical informed understanding of the Holy Spirit, right? Not just a this group understanding or this group understanding or whatever. We want to know what does the Bible teach? And so let's look at it together. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here's one of the passages that might be used in, in, in uh, affirming this baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes sometime after salvation. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, this is Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Amazing, right? I mean, this is just a wonderful account of the Lord meeting his people here. And just you read it, you read the account in the beginning of Acts. And hopefully you're thinking that would I would love to be there. That's one of those spots, right? There may be a thousand of them in my heart and mind and yours, too. But that just one of those spots is just like, what must that have been like? The, the sound of rushing wind. And so what do we have here in this passage? We have believers. We have people who believed in Christ already. What John the Baptist and Jesus, quoting John the Baptist in the beginning of of Acts 1, referred to as the baptism of the Spirit. That's what happens here in, in Acts 2, 1 through 4. But should we understand this as as normative or something that we take and then and then expect to happen from that point forward with those who are saved. I don't think so. This is a unique circumstance and we should understand it as unique. This is a a, a circumstance that has a redemptive historical purpose. It was prophesied that this would take place. Jesus has left now and the spirit is coming. In fact, Jesus says in John 14 verses 16 and 17, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see that? Jesus talking to the disciples who were followers of Jesus. They believed in Christ. He says, 
The Spirit is coming. I'm going away, and the Spirit is going to come. The world does not recognize the Spirit, doesn't understand, doesn't know the Spirit, but you do. You know Him because the Spirit is with you, and He will be in you. He's talking about what's going to take place at Pentecost. That the Spirit, was the Spirit present in the Gospels with Jesus, working around Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus, and with the disciples? Absolutely. But there was a unique thing that happened at Pentecost where the Spirit now is not with us, but is now filling us. Not God only with us now, God in us, empowering us and coming into us. That was unique. That's why Jesus is able to say in John 16, 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And so we have a unique circumstance at Pentecost. In fact, you can imagine when you read chapter 2, maybe this is the first time you've read Acts 2, 1 through 4, and the circumstances that happen there, and this mighty rushing wind, and this, all of these people, 120 disciples who are gathered together, and all of these unique things that are happening. You can imagine the crowd that gathered from that. You look later in, the, in Acts chapter 2, and Peter addresses those who gathered who see the results of the Spirit coming, he says to them, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This is a unique, redemptive, historical purpose here. We have three other locations, though, that we should go to. Three other things that we should look at. In Acts chapter 8, Again, read this, okay? Read these accounts. But in Acts chapter 8, you have Philip who goes to uh, the Samaritans. And he preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And they believe. So they believe the gospel and the apostles hear about it. And it says that they send Peter and John to the Samaritans having heard that they believed the word having heard that they had received the word of God. And they they come, Peter and John come to the Samaritans, and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. For it says, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we have an example that's not Pentecost, but we have believers, the Samaritans. They believed the gospel. Were they saved? Yes, they believed the gospel. They were saved. And so Peter and John, hearing that they had received the word, come and lay their hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. What do we do with that? Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he preaches. And it says that Cornelius and those in the house believe. And while Peter is still preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they show the same outward signs of the Spirit that were seen in Samaria as well as in Jerusalem at Pentecost. You go further into the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19. Paul comes across some disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. And and, and Paul asks them if they've received the Holy Spirit. And they say to him that they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. We don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Paul tells them John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus And then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. What do we do with these accounts? Should we take these three accounts as examples for us to follow and and, and apply to, to churches today? These are normative things that we should expect in the body of Christ. Someone will come to know the Lord and then sometime later they will receive the Holy Spirit, be filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit. No, it should not be seen as normative circumstances. Ephesians 
clearly teaches us that we are all given the Spirit at the moment that we are saved. The Spirit, it says in the uh, 19th verse of of chapter 1, it says in verse 3, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 13, when we believe the gospel, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then verse 19 tells us that the same power, he says, "I, I want you to know, I wish that you would know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work on your behalf. I wish that you would know that, Paul says. Again, these circumstances and acts are a part of redemptive history. In fact, it connects with what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 here. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. These are unique circumstances and acts. We need to understand is that Samaritans and, and Gentiles and disciples of John the Baptist, if the apostles had not seen the evident work of the Spirit coming and filling them, the Jews would have continued to treat the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the uh, disciples of John the Baptist as lesser Christians. They treated them as lesser everything. And so the Jews who believed in Jesus would have continued in that and they would have treated them as less, some lesser level of Christians because they weren't Jews. This is a purposeful situation. It's a part of redemptive history. In fact, it's a part of what Jesus said would happen. This is the gospel going to the nations. In all of these passages, you have it coming to Jerusalem and then advancing beyond that with with Acts chapter uh, 8 and then 10 and then 19. What does Jesus say in Acts 1 verse 8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a fulfillment of that and the apostles are seeing that so that they can go back, Peter and John can go back to Jerusalem, to the Jewish believers there, to the apostles and say, look, if God has not withheld the Spirit on these just in the same way He's given it to us, then we must acknowledge that these are truly equal brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what happened. These are unique circumstances. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, immersed Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And it goes on in verse 13 and says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And hopefully, hopefully you hear that. All were made to drink of one spirit. And your mind goes to John chapter 7. Such a wonderful, wonderful passage where Jesus stands before the people and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What's he talking about there? He's talking about every single one of us. If anyone thirsts, that qualifies every person on the planet. Every single person in this room is thirsty. He's not talking about physical thirsty. He's talking about spiritual thirsty. Every person on the planet is thirsty inside. That's why you see people go from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. People will turn to pornography. People will turn to drugs. People will turn to alcohol because they're thirsty. There is a longing inside of them that can only be satisfied with Jesus. And so when Jesus stands before the people and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink and that thirst will be quenched forever. Come to me and drink. I'm the only one who can quench that thirst inside of you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me And drink. Whoever believes in me, it says in verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does he mean by that? Verse 39 tells us, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is calling people to himself. If anyone thirsts, 
Come to me and drink. And when you drink, you will receive the spirit out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. It's identical to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We heard Jesus say, come if you're thirsty. And we came and we drank. It's referring to salvation. We all have the spirit. Or like we see in Romans 8, 9, we're not saved if we don't. I want to spend the rest of the time thinking through this a bit further. I want to ask this question, should we as followers of Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, seek a baptism of the Holy Spirit? Should we seek a a second baptism of the Holy Spirit? Maybe, Tony, maybe, okay, that's what he's saying here, that this is salvation and we were all immersed, we were all baptized, but should we seek another baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let me say first, no, no. That's what happens when we are saved. Jesus assures us in the Gospel of John that if you are in Christ, you are safe in Christ. No one can take you out of Jesus' hand. And then he goes and says, no one can take you out of my Father's hand. You are there. You are safe. The beginning of 1 Corinthians assures the Corinthians of that. But I think we should be careful with this careful that we don't become too rigid against people who refer to it. So we can be in a camp on maybe this side of the music stand and there's people in the camp down there and they say that they're going to seek baptism of the Holy Spirit and we were like, I'm not comfortable with that. And, And we can become rigid and ununified in that when sometimes it's semantics. What do I mean by that? When Jesus refers to Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, he uses the words of John the Baptist, and he says that they will be baptized in the Spirit. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 12 uses the same words referring to salvation. All of us immersed. But then in Acts 2, when Pentecost takes place, Luke, the author of Acts, says they were all filled with the Spirit. Which makes sense. They were filled with the Spirit. Jesus said in John, He was with you and He's going to be in you. And then throughout the book, Luke refers to times when those who have already been filled with the Holy Spirit are filled with the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? In Acts 4 8, you have Peter, who just, we see in Acts is a primary part of that. He, he's filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 4.8, it says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks with power, and Jewish leaders are amazed at his boldness. You go further into the chapter. I love this, okay? Read these, okay? If you have a pen, you do have a pen, okay? No excuses here. You have a pen. There's pens in front of you. Write these passages down. This is Read Acts 4. This is wonderful. So you have Peter, who Peter and John are arrested for uh, speaking of Jesus. They go before the same people that killed Jesus, and then they're released. They're told, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. So they go to this group of believers, right? And that's what we're going to look at, Acts 4.31. That group of believers is assembled together. Peter and John come and say to them, Look, the people that killed Jesus have told us we can't talk about Jesus anymore. And if we do, something's going to happen. We may be arrested. We may be in prison. We may be put to death, too, because that's what they did to Jesus. And the response of the believers is phenomenal. Okay, you have to read that. If you've never read it, read it, read it. They pray the first words that come out of their mouth in prayer is sovereign Lord. Which absolutely means this. We believe, God, you put us in this circumstance. 
and they don't spend the rest of their prayer they, asking him to get them out of the circumstance or just do something to these, these religious leaders who are being so mean to them, what they do is they praise God for the gospel and then they pray that God would continue to allow them to speak the word of God with boldness. It is beautiful, okay? Side note, you have to read that. It's just such a wonderful thing. But in Acts 4.31, those believers who were already filled with the Spirit, they're, they're believers. They're praying, and the place was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result is they spoke the Word of God with boldness. In Acts 6, we see Stephen, who's full of faith in the Spirit, and it says that he was full of power and did wonders and signs among the people, and the leaders couldn't resist the wisdom and the Spirit with which he spoke. In Acts 11, verse 24, Barnabas is full of the Spirit. and Faith and a large company was added to the Lord. In Acts 9, we see that um, Saul is on the road to Damascus and he encounters the Lord and, and he's blind for days. And then uh, he, um, Ananias comes and lays his hands on him. His, his, the scales fall off. He can see again and he's filled with the Spirit. And then we see in, in chapter 13, verse 9, later, Paul is filled with the Spirit as he spoke to Elamis. God gave him the extraordinary power to pronounce him blind for a season. So here's what I mean by being cautious in this. Although we must be careful with what we mean, study and and know what you mean when you say things. Study and know. We're not seeking to be baptized in the Spirit, referring to being saved we should be seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, after Paul has, has, has laid out in chapter 1 that we receive the Spirit when we come to know Christ, in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an ongoing, ever-going process. He says, Keep keeping filled. Keep keeping filled with the Holy Spirit. You look through the New Testament, there's there's overwhelming evidence that being filled with the Spirit is evident. There's power, there's boldness, there's unity, there's the list goes on. And so why is it that so many people in the body of Christ scratch their heads when they come across the passage in John 16 where Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away? Ever thought about that? That Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away? I think many people in the church, when they come across that, if they take the time to think about what Jesus is saying, would wrestle with that. Is it advantageous that Jesus is not here and I have the Spirit instead of Jesus present here? Is it advantageous to me that way? I think a lot of people in the church today would say, I don't know how it is. Because I see what Jesus' presence there was like and I don't see much effect of the Spirit. How can that be? Why is that? You go through the book of Acts and you see the work of the Spirit. You go through the New Testament. You see the the power and the boldness that the Spirit brings. Galatians 5.16 clearly tells us that at the very least, there is power over sin. That's what Paul says in in Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's power over sin. That's that's walking in a way that doesn't say yes to the flesh, but says yes to the things of God. So at the very least, we see that. John 7, 37 through 39 that we looked at, where Jesus says, whoever believes in me, 
You notice those words? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, not some like, you know, super group of people who believe in me or some some group over here in this, you know, this category of the Holy Spirit thinking. No, no, no. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And verse 39 tells us he's referring to the spirit. So what's going on? Is the Bible wrong? No. Or or maybe we just need to re-explain it to people. Just let people know when they come to know Christ. Yes, yes, yes. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But you you just got to believe he's there. You just have to. Just tell yourself he's there. It doesn't seem like what we see in the New Testament. There's evidence. I think it's more than that. I think we often, as Christians, go to wine rather than the Spirit. When Paul says... Don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, don't seek your satisfaction in other things. Don't go after other things for fulfillment and satisfaction. Go to the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit will help you say no to those earthly things that you're finding satisfaction in. I think we've turned to other things for satisfaction instead of God. Instead of seeking to be filled with the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Think about that. We're told to drink of the Spirit. We're told to be filled with the Spirit. Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we aren't satisfied with Him. We seek satisfaction in other things. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Just think that, okay? We can grieve the Spirit of God that's in us. But how do we do that? Well, look at the context of Ephesians 4. When we sin, Paul's talking about putting off the old, what was attached to our former life. You're made new now. He says, put off the old and put on the new. Since Ephesians 1 is true about you, walk that way. Live that way. And so when we don't, when we go back to the old life, when we, put off, when we don't put off the old, and we live as if Jesus has never died for our sins, never changed us, never given us a new heart. We grieve the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. And so think about this. It's just a selection of things in the New Testament. What is the picture of the Spirit-filled life? What does a Spirit-filled person look like? Here's just a selection. A God-enthralled person who addresses others with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all their heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says. Galatians 5.16 says that the spirit-filled life is a life of self-denying power. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's denying the self. Denying self. Romans 5.5 tells us that the spirit-filled life is a life of overwhelming love. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You've seen the book of Acts, the Spirit-filled life is a life of boldness. Galatians chapter 5, it's a life of 
joy, abundant joy along with the other fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We see in John 14 and 16, a Spirit-filled life is a life of of a love and a mind for the words of Christ. That's what Jesus says. When the Helper comes, He's going to remind you of what I have spoken to you. John 16, it's conviction of sin. And then if we take John 7 and what Jesus says of the Spirit and drinking of Jesus, it all seems like gushing rivers. So let me ask you, is that you? Is that me? If you're in Christ, maybe it's time to give yourself anew to the Lord. Maybe you've been drinking from other fountains, finding satisfaction in everything but the hope of the Spirit. Confess your sins and believe the truth of the gospel. Repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you never believed, never denied yourself, never trusted Jesus fully for forgiveness, then just as he says to those who are listening to him in John chapter 7, he says to us today, come, says to you today, come to me all who thirst and drink. Believe, believe in Jesus. Be saved and receive the Spirit. I think for so many of us, I think we hesitate when it comes to being filled with the Spirit because we're honest we are afraid we're more afraid of what it might look like if we're filled with the spirit than we are desirous of being filled with the spirit we've seen too many things i don't want to look like that i I certainly don't want to look like that kind of a person i don't want to look like that and so i'm more afraid of what it will look like then I really do desire to be filled with the Spirit. And so we'll even address, we wouldn't word it this way in our prayers, but when we come and, and ask to be filled with the Spirit, in our minds we're thinking things like, and this is what I mean, Lord. I want to be filled with your Spirit and, and as long as it's this. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says in verses 11 through 13, What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think some of us are afraid, we don't believe this verse, and we're afraid that if we ask to be filled with the Spirit, He's going to give us a serpent or a scorpion instead. That's not how the Father works. The Father loves you and the Father loves me more than we love Him. The Father desires that I be filled with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit more than I desire that. And when I come to him, confessing my sins and desiring to know him and seeking and asking, as Jesus says, give us the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to give us scorpions and serpents. He wants to give us his spirit. So I encourage us as we go through this. that maybe we're not walking a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe as you hear that list of things from the New Testament and what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled person, you look at that and think, that's, I don't see any evidence of that in my life. If that's the case, 
Confess your sins and come to the Father. He's a good Father. And He loves you more than you love your own children. And ask Him, ask Him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we need you. We are dependent on you. We're dependent on your spirit. Even as we think through in, in your word that you've spoken to us, what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. Lord, to be thankful. To be filled with the fruit of your spirit. To, to have self-denying power, Lord. to say no to the things of the flesh and yes to the things of you, and yet we hesitate. I pray that at the root of the hesitation for us is not a disbelief in how good our Father is. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us? I confess to you, Lord, I have let my baggage concern me. And even cause me to hesitate at times, Lord. God, you know my heart. You know I desire to be filled with your spirit. I desire for us as a body to be filled with your spirit, Lord. I pray that you would help us. And I pray that you would fill us. I pray that you'd bring conviction of sin. These things that you give to us in your spirit love and joy and peace and a life that, that says no to sin and self-control and boldness. These are things you've called us to, Lord, and we can't do them without your spirit. And so I pray that you bring conviction and repentance today. We have idolized ourself. We found satisfaction in ourself and in other things and not in you. So help us to see the weight of that. To know the weight of that, Lord. To repent and to come to you and give ourselves completely to you again. That we might be filled with your spirit. That we might walk in newness of life that you have purchased and given to us in Christ. You have saved us, Lord. You've saved us. We are holy and blameless before you. We want to glorify you by living out that blamelessness and holiness before all men that you would receive more glory. So please, please give us your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.